Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast, The Hunger for Spirituality, featuring Susan Carland, Tony Doherty and Michelle Laurie in conversation with Elsa Piper, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Yes, my name's Elsa Piper and I'm going to introduce you to this fabulous panel. We've got two goddesses, we've got a priest and we've got a high priestess. <laughs> so down on my far right is Susan Carland. I know you know these people but there may be something I can tell you that you didn't know. Susan's a lecturer and researcher at Monash University's National Centre for Australian Studies. She has been listed as one of the 500 most influential Muslims in the world. Terrifying, Susan, I imagine. <laughs> Um, and as a Muslim leader of tomorrow, both by the UN Alliance of Civilizations. She's a regular reviewer on ABC News Breakfast and an agony aunt on Radio National's Life Matters. <laughs> and of course, she's the author of Fighting Islam. Michelle Laurie, next to her, is known to you, I'm sure, from radio and television. She's a person, she says, her, pub, her publicity blurb says she's a radio personality and comedian, and I reckon that must be the hardest thing to live up to, a personality and comedian. <laughs> it's like, how do you do that? Especially at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning. <laughs> um, she's appeared on Spicks and Specs. I was a huge fan of you on that. You were the best. Hi. Good News Week and Rove. Um, she is a, all over Melbourne on radio particularly, um, but she writes for Mamma Mia and is the author of a book with the fantastic title The Fence Painting Fortnight of Destiny. But here at Byron she's talking about <laughs> Buddhism for breakups. Um, next to her is the reason that we're in the Ferros aged care tent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> What's so funny? <laughs> This is my beloved friend and co-author, Tony Doherty. Um, I actually did... I was naughty. I did some sums last night. I added up the ages of these two beautiful women and Tony is, in fact, older than their combined ages. <laughs> oh, gosh. But I he used likes... to feel young a lot and I don't anymore, so thank you so much. Is, it's been a long time since I've been pumped up like this. This is great. <laughs> Tony says he makes it his job to make everybody feel young and, indeed, he does. Thank to you. <laughs> Good job. Um, I say that because Tony was thinking he might be the oldest person here. He's 83 years old and I've got to tell you, that's a mind like a 20-year-old. Oh. Look at everyone applauding you for not dying. Well yes. done! <laughs> well done, sir. <laughs> so oh, this is getting too personal. <laughs> So now I'm going to tell you what he's done in those 83 years. Tony's been a priest and educator in Sydney for almost 60 years. During that time, he's been a hospital chaplain, an adult educator, a parish priest, of course, and a writer. He's written a lot, although he does say it's nice to have his first sort of general book come out at the age of 82. <laughs> so for all of you, get publishing. Um, he's contributed... He contributes a lot to radio and TV as a commentator, but... Uh, in 1995, he coordinated the visit of Pope John Paul II and the meeting between the Pope and his mother remains one of the most formative moments of his life. Um, and he was also Dean of St Mary's Cathedral where he oversaw the spires that were finally built in 2000. Uh, he hates me saying, but he was awarded the Order of Australia for all manner of good works. For age. <laughs> <laughs> well done. 
he lives. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the co-author of um, a book with me called The Attachment, Letters from a Most Unlikely Friendship. So can I ask you to welcome these three eminent people? So we're here to talk about the hunger for spirituality, which is an incredibly broad term. And so I suppose I wanted to ask each of you first, what do you reckon spirituality is? Mm. Not religion, but spirituality. Mm. Susan, do you ah. want to go first? I could see you looking for divine guidance. <laughs> <there>. <laughs> Tell me what to say. Um, <laughs> I think the spirituality, I guess I would see, is the more esoteric um, part of religion or the human quest. Um, I think religion, I obviously think religion can be spiritual and I think even the rituals of religion can be imbibed with spirituality. I know that's true in my own tradition that the whole point of these rituals is to make the mundane sacred, that, you know, with a God consciousness, um, getting dressed or, or having something to eat or drink, that can become a spiritual act with the right mindset. But I guess I feel spirituality is, is the stuff that feeds our souls. It's that drink when you feel like you're in a parched desert. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's what it feels like to me. Beautiful. Michelle. Isn't she? Isn't she beautiful? Mm. Um, I think uh, it's... I mean, I think it's everything you said, but I can't say it as well. But also, I think it's a connection to that which we know exists, but we struggle to name mm. or to... We can't see it, but we feel it. We know there is this greater kind of power or source. And again, the, the Aboriginal people were very sort of clear in their descriptions of, of that greater thing. And, and so I think that is spirit... And I think spirituality is trying to connect with it mm. in some way in this, this human realm that we live in. Tony? Beautifully put, I must say. The, um, I guess I start with the word mystery. I think we all are caught in mystery. Where, where have we come from? What does love mean? What happens when we lose things, I mean, life? Uh, what happens with death? All of that is gathered by the word mystery. And I think everyone, uh, this idea of believers and unbelievers really annoys me a little bit. I think we're all caught in this mystery and how we deal with it. And I think spirituality is really is trying to get onto the surface of things to confront that mystery. Mm. And... Um, there were things that uh, uh, Susan and, and Michelle had mentioned that, I, that I'd like to pick up and continue, but uh, that's my starting point. And mm -hmm. I think that uh, uh, I think you know this uh, uh, writers' festival of this sort mm. yeah, are, are a group of people who are searching below the surface of things for ideas, for story, for for experience, and uh, that to me seems to be the spiritual search that um, is hooked up at that moment. One tiny little postscript. I'm not never comfortable with the difference between spirituality and religion, by the way. I know religion means institutional churches and, you know, we're in all sorts of trouble there. Um, but um, religion means tying yourself back. That's what the word means. Tying yourself back to your essence. Religo. And that's re really spirituality. Tying your back, yourself back to the mystery of who you are 
who people are and the mystery in which we're living. Anyway, that's mm. my two penneth. Can I just add to that? I yeah, think yeah. you're so right that this is an environment like this that we're in today and, and this festival, it, you do get this overwhelming feeling every time I fill my lungs that we are all reaching for spirit and we are all... There's a real communion in an event like this and having been raised Catholic, it is one of the things I really miss in Buddhism is um, in Buddhism we don't have mass once a week we don't have church we don't have a place to go to where we're together and um fill mm. our lungs together mm. you use the word connecting and that's yeah mm. well interestingly you know in the census recently the decline in people who claim to be religious has happened at exactly the same time in the last few years as the rise in writers festivals and i do think <laughs> we're in church ladies and gentlemen yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to, though, Tony, you picked up on religion and I'd like to actually ask you, Susan, I mean, I think you must be accustomed at the moment to wearing the hat that... It, well, both, actually, both Tony and Susan, you're wearing hats that are connected to something that's personal but also that's being taken as political mm. and, you know, yeah. because of where your spirituality lands. Mm. Um, I'd love you to talk a little bit about what that's like but first I really want you to talk about where the hunger came from because mm. many of you may not know... Susan didn't get, you know, to be a Muslim when she married her husband. She actually, that's right, isn't it? She actually took on her faith before mm. that. So could mm. you speak a little, I'd like you all to speak about what the hunger was mm. and where it took you down that path. Yeah, that is the, the standard assumption that I converted yeah. to get married. And I think um, it's there because people cannot conceive that a woman would choose to become Muslim. That's at its root. That, that why, like, okay, we can understand someone being Muslim because they have to, but why would anyone choose it? Um, so that it, that mm. is the reality. Um, so, but I became Muslim when I was a teenager. And did you, uh, what, what did you grow up with? I want to take you right back. To yeah, I grew up in a lovely, positive Christian home. Um, I loved going to church. I loved my church community. I could not have had a better church experience mm. growing up. Everyone in the church that I encountered was what you would want your church experience to be. Loving, giving, generous, patient, you know, just brilliant. Really, really brilliant. Um, but it was when, and, and so I knew I, I knew I always believed in God, but it was when I was sort of in my mid-teens, I started to have questions um, about God, the universe and everything. And particularly, why do I believe what I do? Is it because I think it's true or is it just what I've been raised to believe? That was a big thing I started to wonder. And so I decided to look into different religions. And to my surprise, Islam made a lot of sense to me. Um, and that was when I sort of stripped back beyond you know, headlines and, well, well, there weren't hashtags back then, but, you know, all the sort of the, the drama that was playing out in, in the media in particular, you so know, movies and TV. So what time was that? Was that pre-9-11? Yeah. yeah. It, I, it would have been about 1999, I think. I became Muslim, 2000, somewhere around then. Just um, in time. Yeah, yeah, just in time. Just in time for everything <laughs> to, to, come, to come out. Uh. <laughs> Great. It was really good timing. Uh. Um <laughs> 
Yeah, and so, but it, it took me a while to become Muslim. I didn't become Muslim until I was 19 because I was, uh, it, it's not something you do lightly, I suppose. No one changes any religion lightly or leaves a religion or enters a new one or anything like that. Um, so I wanted to be sure that I really believed it. And also I was worried about the reaction of family and friends. So it took me a while um, until I sort of thought, well, this is what I really believe and, and I don't want to hurt anyone, but this is what I think is true. And so I, I have to sort of follow this, this path. So it's interesting to choose something that give that potentially gives hurt. I mean, mm. I don't know at if the I, time, you know, I yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I certainly politically didn't realize that at the time, but I didn't. Yeah, I obviously really didn't want to hurt my family or friends with it. Of course, mm. um, it, it was. It, but there came. I knew that I was ready to convert when I thought I know this might upset people, and I still think it's true. So was there a hunger? I'm going to hit you all with that mm. word because the festival directors put it in the title, and I like it. Mm. What was the hunger? For me, it was it was definitely the hunger for God, and and tied in that up in that was the hunger for truth. What did I genuinely think to be true? So truth about self. Yeah, and 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 the divine. Mm. Um, and so it was it was through searching through that, and then it was for me at first it was an intellectual engagement, and then the spirituality followed. Mm. Thanks, Michelle. Well, Susan and I have talked about this a lot. A similar experience, very similar. Raised Christian. Um, searching for something else and and for me buddhism seemed true and so it's 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 interesting how we both um you know i tease her about the fact that obviously i'm right <laughs> um <laughs> sir but um but but a very similar experience in that the more research i did the more it felt to me as though i was remembering rather than learning and um, it just felt true. But also, I mean, the teachings of Buddha, very similar to the teachings of Jesus. And um, in some way, it just seemed um, deeper and, 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 and more, more going beneath in the search of that, um, working your way through that mystery for me. But you have to give up a lot, don't you? You have to give up the obvious community, the practice of mm. having somewhere to go. You have to create that for yourself, don't you? Well, you or do. do you? I mean, there are places to go and we Western Buddhists really try and force the Eastern Buddhists into our way of doing things. <laughs> so, we, <laughs> as, I mean, that's Buddhism. Christianity is probably the same, I suppose. Buddhism in every country is different because it takes on the, mm. a bit of the personality of the country. And so we Western Buddhists definitely create places that we like to go and get together and, um, and usually hear from beautiful old Tibetan monks. Mm. Um, yeah, so we create community, but it's, you're right, it's probably not natural. There's an interesting thing actually that a little a side note that was in Susan's book where she points out that there are over 180 different communities in which that would call themselves Muslim in Australia alone. So what is a Muslim community? What is a Buddhist community? What is a Christian community? It's a, you know, we're very quick to put that sort of label on something, but in fact within each of these great religions there's... Um, well, is, is Buddhism a religion? Uh, I think it is. Some people say it's a philosophy. Uh, many Christians study Buddhism as a philosophy, uh, but for me it's a religion. But, I mean... It's interesting too in the context of this, this conversation when we talk about the politicisation of Islam and the politicisation of Christianity and certainly being a Catholic priest is, you know, these days carries a connotation with it. Um, you know, there are people calling themselves Buddhists in Burma who are murdering Muslims as yeah. we speak and yeah. for whatever reasons that doesn't attract media attention but that certainly is a reminder to us that there are people who will usurp any great religion for their own ends, 
you can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself, but if you're not following the basic tenets, and, and no religion teaches kill other people, mm. no religion does or hurt other people. Mm. Uh, so I feel compassion for, for certainly for Susan in that way. I think, gosh, if we had worse media, we Buddhists, you know, mm. maybe I'd be the one being trolled on Facebook all day and all night and threatened and all of that kind of stuff that Susan lives with. So I'd be interested to hear also about your experience as, as a priest for such a long time. Mm. It feels like before, during and after this mm. incredible explosion in the church, this terrible explosion. Tony, talk about what your bed. hunger You've been was. hiding under the bed. I don't blame you. <laughs> I talk to Father Bob in Melbourne about this yeah, quite yeah. often, you know, about being He's a great priest. He's under the priest. bed with me, actually. Yeah. <laughs> God, he'd chew your Is ear it? off. By the way, <laughs> Bob and I are twins. Are you? Yeah, yeah we're exactly the same age. Are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, Tony, it's hard to talk about your... Fella. Can you talk about your um, starting point, though? Because it's so long yeah, ago it's in a different what a, world. Yeah, what, what a question. Your hunger for spirituality is a lovely question, really. It's... Um, I think I begin with, with a hunger to understand myself. Mm. I think that's, uh, that triggered me years ago, triggered me to get into this game, I think, to become a priest. Uh, but that's... I, I don't really don't like uh, conflating my life as a priest and my life as a human being. Uh, uh, those two things can get... Um, overwhelm one another. So, uh, but to, to understand myself and to understand the mystery of myself is, I think, the starting point and the fuel that continues my search for uh, spirituality. Because spirituality, did I say this, is looking below things, mm. below the surface. We live in this skating rink of skating from event to event. I mean, I do too. Um, you know, and, and all of the... The aid I have in, well, living by myself, having a tradition of prayer, having a tradition of ritual, I'm still on the skating rink with all of you. Mm. Was so it to get under that surface is, is something which I ache for. Sorry. Was it ever thus when you began? Was it the same? Uh, yeah. The, the, um, I think there are three great imponderables. The universe, the self... And the other. This universe we're, we're living in is just... My God, I haven't, I haven't got an imagination even to begin to penetrate what that means. As a little boy, about the age of 10, I remember going to a, an observatory to look through a telescope. And there was a man, he was a Jesuit priest actually, who was helping the little boys to look at the moon. Well, damn it, I couldn't see it. But I got pushed along the line and... Uh, and I went outside the observatory and for the first time really saw the Milky Way. And the question that came out of it was, where do I fit in this? And I think the question's still with me. And, I, and it's, so the, it began in those days, went through a whole pile of work and all sorts of things. And the, at about the age of 22, I, uh, I tried to satisfy this, this thirst in this particular game with all of its ambiguity, you know, with all of the tensions and contradictions of being a priest today, uh, which, um, anyway, so that's, uh, it, searching for myself, searching for what this universe is about, 
searching for the other people. What, what's this connection we're talking about? How do you connect with another person? You know, uh, that, that there's, all, there's a whole family of questions around that. One anyway, of the yeah. things um, that was interesting when we were talking about this panel beforehand was that there are three people here who are identifiable with, uh, you know, a, a religion or a culture, a culture or a philosophy, and that I sit very much in a place of having been a searcher, but mine, my first taste of spirituality came from the Yamaji people in Western Australia. Then I got Catholicism, then I hunted down Buddhism, then I got walking. And people laugh about that, but uh, walking. Walking, walking. But you know, the pilgrim, and I, I suppose if I identify as anything, it's as a pilgrim. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of people like that too who don't necessarily have a place to hang their hat, but they know they believe in something or they want something. And uh, I think that, you know, spirituality has become this word that I find a bit troublesome. It's like it's a bit wet or a bit mm. soft. I have practices, I have things I do that shape my world and allow me to pay respect, give thanks, ask for help. And so I suppose, um, you know, we're also in a world where people are not necessarily having the experience of belonging. Can I ask you all to speak about belonging and where that places you in, your, in the context of your spiritual discipline or life? Mm. Let's go back to you, Susan. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. It was interesting listening to Michelle talk about how Western Buddhists will, you know, create a, a Western Buddhism. And it's similar, I think, with Australian Muslims. Like you said, Islam in Australia is incredibly multicultural. And um, it's funny, you know, certainly at times I can feel like a bit of a black sheep in the Muslim community. But then I can also feel like a black sheep in the non-Muslim community. And I did as well. And I actually wonder... Were you always there? Was that it, your It felt voice? like it. It's funny, like I always had friends and, and that sort of thing, but I, there was always this sense that, I don't know, like I just didn't fit in. And I, I do wonder if that in some ways was part of or propelling of my spiritual quest because for me there was a realisation that in fact who I belonged with was God. That's where the belonging was. Um, you know, there's this... The, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis, which I, I know I won't get right, but something along the lines of, if there is this hunger within me that cannot be satisfied by anything in this life, I know what I'm searching for is something from another realm. And so for me, my sense of belonging whenever I, which is often feel like I don't really feel like I fit anywhere, that's because I fit with God. That's where the belonging is. Um, and so then I, I make sense of belonging through spiritual practices. And I'm not saying, you know, I, I don't like people or I don't have friends. I do. But there is always, the, just this always, little, I guess, shade of um, feeling, I, I just, I don't fit and I don't know why. But I actually feel a peace with that, that, that that's okay. And is it okay to be identified because of all of us on the panel... You could, we could be walking down the street. No yeah. one knows what we believe, but people can go, bang, I mm. know who she is. Yeah. It's a tricky one, I think, because, you know, there's... Um, Some people might think you just got out of the shower. Yeah. <laughs> there could be that, yeah. I know. <laughs> I do, yeah. Heaps of things. <laughs> Sometimes people, I have had someone say, I'm so sorry about your battle with cancer. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it was actually awkward to feel like to say, oh, the wrong answer was that I yeah. didn't have cancer, that that was the wrong thing to say. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, the, I mean, I, it is tricky because there's not a lot of Muslims in Australia. Does anyone know what percentage of Australia is Muslim? 
They all do. 2.6. What, what did other people say? Eight. Eight. One. One. Anything else? I thought it was two. Two-ish. No? Four. Any other guesses? What about from the people in the cheap seats up there? <laughs> Anyone know? The reason I ask is because... I actually ask this question a lot when I give talks because people will often wildly overestimate 10, 30. One woman once said 50%. I said, lady, <laughs> look around. We're not half of the audience. We are... We're, the latest census said 2.6, so well done to who said that. But So that's quite small. 2.6% of Australia is a very small amount, but... Um, which w what that means is the vast majority of Australians will never have or don't have a, a Muslim friend or colleague or neighbour. They don't. So the only source of Islam they get is from TV. And so when all you see about Islam and all you know about Islam is ISIS and terrorism and should we ban the burqa, that is, does give people a very skewed understanding of, of, of what a Muslim is and certainly what a Muslim woman is. So when people do see me on the street, often, you know, I do wonder what they think. And in fact, sometimes they tell me what they think. Um, <laughs> and generally, it isn't positive, which is, which is an unfortunate reality, um, because being Muslim has become a political identity. It's not seen as a religious identity anymore, which I find incredibly sad, um, because, you know, it's not a political identity for me. It's, a, it's as much as a faith as it is for Michelle. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, well, for both of you, of course it is. It's a religious identity. That's, that's who you are. But being a Muslim is framed totally um, in a political realm. And that naturally impacts on the way people will interact with me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, see, I'm so lucky sure. because most people think of Buddhism as the Dalai Lama is like Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so cute and giggles a lot and that's who they think we are. So yeah. I'm so lucky. <laughs> lucky. But I went to this thing yeah. called the Kala Chakra in January and I, I think maybe it was similar to the when the Pope visits or you yeah. go to a big papal event. His Holiness the Dalai Lama gave a, uh, like, I think it was an eight-day teaching in the end. There were 300,000 people there and we were in sort of tents like this except because it was India, there were no nails or bolts. Everything was held together by fabric. Have you been there? It's like coloured fabric that they tie in knots. So uh, that was scary. But <laughs> also the community was amazing because, like, not many people spoke English. There were people from all over the world. Um, in the streets there were... There were speakers playing chants, the monks chanting. It was full immersion and it, and it did. I just felt like part of this incredible spiritual community and we were all there for the purpose of this ritual that would take place at the end. So that was a very beautiful, powerful feeling of belonging. Mm. That was wonderful. And at home, do you are you able to access that easily? Or? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's mm. like a zone I can slip into mm. in some way. Mm. I meditating or uh, chanting or sitting down sometimes with the computer and watching a live stream of an event like that. I recently watched His Holiness's 82nd birthday celebrations, live streamed from India, and, uh, yeah, I'm just in the zone. Mm. Oh, it's a wonderful zone. <laughs> Beautiful zone. Tony, what's belonging for you? Because you see yourself as part of a very big tradition, don't you? Yes, the, uh, I mean, uh, James Joyce said... Um, Catholics, here comes everybody. <laughs> and he really meant that we're all, you know, we're so, we're so broad and so diverse and so mixed. Uh, Dan Berrigan is a Jesuit, some of you might have heard of, that uh, died a little while ago, wonderful hero of mine. 
And uh, they used to say to Dan, you know, 15, 20 years ago, why are you a priest, Dan? All of your mates have left. What are you doing here? And he, his answer was, some of the worst people I know in the world are Catholic. But it just happens that some of the small group of the best people mm, I know. Yeah. And it's that sense of belonging with uh, a group of people who I see as my church. In a sort of a way, there's a very small, there's, there's a small circle of about 20 people who n nurture me and nourish me with, by writing, by their friendship, by, um, by their, the way they comport their lives. They're sort of heroes of mine. That's the small group who nourish me personally. Then there's a, a wider group. I've just left a parish. And uh, I really feel a sense of loss. Uh, I was a parish uh, pastor there for uh, about 10 or 11 years. And uh, I became really involved in the lives of people, as you do in a parish. Little story is when you go to a parish first, it's a bit like this. You see, look at everyone. Oh, aren't they nice? Aren't they pretty, well-dressed, intelligent people, lovely, you know, this is going to be good fun. Then you're there for 10 years <laughs> and you get to know their individual stories mm. and you love them. Oh. What, when, that worked, that worked, did it? Yeah. Worked yeah. <laughs> you are lovely. Yeah. Can you be our priest? Yeah. Can you mind yeah. the priest? No, seriously. You see, are uh, lovely. Gosh, that well, I'll do, can we do that again? <laughs> <laughs> it's a serious comment. When you know a person's story, you love them. Mm. Uh, the, the brokenness, and the sort of confusion, and the, and the and, and, and b below the facade. Again, mm. it's, it's getting below the surface. Mm. And uh, I just retired from that uh, a little while ago. They call, call it movement to lesser duties. That's the statement I've been. I haven't retired. This is one of the lesser duties. Oh, well, <laughs> Meeting these people, better duties. But so the sense of belonging, which is Ailsa's yeah, penetrating question, uh, I have an intense sense of belonging to all sorts of circles of people. They are my life. They're ordinary, they're full of questions, they're full of searching, they skate on the surface of life, but, but uh, uh, they're the people who nurture me. Some nurture me, others I try to nurture them. But uh, that, that's, the, that's the community. And uh, it's such an ambiguous community. I mean, uh, I should say to you that one of the great contradictions of my life, the tensions of my life, is that, I, that I've lived the most satisfying life for not, oh, 61 years, I guess, I started in this game. It really is. I couldn't think of a better, more nourishing, more satisfying, more deeply enlarging profession to be in. That's one side of the contradiction. The other side of the contradiction is now the word Catholic priest often means pedophile yeah. who, who rape children. Now, trying to bring those two things together is a huge contradiction, but it energises me. Anyway. Mm. And it, I, I mean, that's tragic. And again, it reminds me of, you know, are you, are you called upon to um, defend the indefensible? in the way that Susan is often? Are you sort of publicly called out to, 
speak to these things that you've never done, have nothing to do with you? Uh, my response, excuse me, I hope this isn't too personal. I mean, when I talk to a group of people like this, I presume that there have been experience of sexual abuse right here. Mm. With you personally, with your families, with your friends. Uh, it might have been with, uh, as part of a Catholic community. I mean, everyone has been touched by, well, many people have been touched by the scourge. I don't try to defend it. And neither should I, you, but it feels I, like I, sometimes I we sort of want you to. Yeah, yeah, what about right. this guy and that guy and how they moved them and, yeah. you know, that's God, not God, you. God, that's ambiguous. Yeah. I mean, uh, but my response really is actually to, to, on behalf of colleagues of mine who I know, to just say how devastating it is to find out and to, it sounds so weak and flabby, but to apologise. Mm. One of the things I think that is interesting about that is when Tony and I first... Our book is a book of letters. When we first began writing to each other, it came out of a book I had written which was about carrying the sins of other people. And Tony asked me if I could carry the sins of a pedophile and I said a very loud no. I thought that was too much for my shoulders. And Tony said, then what would you have me do mm. with the person who writes to me in despair from jail asking for help? Would you have me say no? Now, that's the question I kind of want to put to all of you. It's not just about us. Spirituality is not just about us feeling warm and good and cosy. No. It's about actually coming up against those parts of ourselves. Real mm. spirituality, I think, is about coming up against the parts of ourselves that say, oh, no, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm a nice spiritual person. Mm. No, it's actually looking at the dark stuff. So, I mean, I kind of well, like to ask you about that. That's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? That's mm. it, That's yeah. where, for me, the chants and the beads and all the pretty stuff you know, fades and, and where you have to actually put yourself, you know, into it and really engage with it. And, and it's a similar question that we are asked as Buddhists uh, as you're studying to feel compassion for everybody, to feel compassion for the man who hurts animals, to feel compassion for the man who hurts children or the women who, who, who hurt people, all the things we abhor and run from. And, and that is what we're tasked to do, and in fact, um, the Buddha asked us to see everybody or to love everybody as we love our mother, because in Buddhism we believe in cyclic existence that we are born many, many times. And maybe Susan was my mother one time, you know. <laughs> She's easy to love, but some people, some people aren't easy to love. Mm. But that that is really, as a Buddhist, that is my task. Is and that's where the spirit has to get bigger, isn't it? Yep, mm -hmm. that's where the work comes in. Yeah. yeah, Susan, do you want to talk about that a little? Yeah, more? I think it that that is the heart and the most important work of spiritual growth is compassion for others, as as Michelle said, and and genuine non-judgmental compassion for others. And um, as we were talking about in the tent earlier, actually. Um, Audacious grace, I think, is, is the example I use. Um, there's that great... For any of you who have read or seen the, the best musical in the world, Les Mis, um, there's this wonderful scene where the, the bishop forgives... Um, so, for those of you that don't know the story, there's a criminal... A, a, a priest takes him and is very kind to him. He repays the priest by robbing him from very expensive things of his, from his house. Soldiers catch the man and bring him back. And the priest, in that moment, instead of saying, yes, he stole from me, send him back to jail, says, no, 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 I gave you these things as a gift. In fact, you should have taken these other expensive things as well. 
It's this moment of audacious grace, radical grace that had the most profound effect on me when I read it and when I, when I saw it sung in the musical <laughs> as well. Um, and I think that is what we are called to do. But equally, we need to turn the hard task of spiritual discipline to ourselves. And it's so easy to look at others and be like, oh, they've got that problem, that got, they've got that problem. We need to turn the really difficult uh, mirror on ourselves and that's one of the things that um, the ritual in Islam is very good at the you know the the Ramadan for example fasting in Ramadan and the daily prayers those sort of things they are meant to be very hard spiritual acts which forces you to face the things about yourself that are not good and that you need to change that forces us to face our selfishness and our arrogance and our laziness and says be better you can be better and you should be better and when you are more disciplined with yourself the idea is that you'll just become softer and softer and more compassionate with others um, and that is that is the most important thing all the other stuff the ritual or the nice words is meaningless unless we do that hard work of audacious grace to others and and grace with ourselves but still calling ourselves to a higher account it's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the things that Susan poses in her book is how can the beautiful poet Rumi mm. and the head of, um, is, of ISIS, ISIS come from the same tradition? How is it possible that they can take the same teachings? Mm. And I think that can be asked of all oh, three absolutely. of you. What, yeah, how what can do you someone call that? themselves a Buddhist monk and, um, you know, carry out genocide against Muslims in Burma? Because I think the ego is so powerful and... It, it comes back to I know better. I know better than God. I know better than Buddha. I know better than my interpretation is more real. Um, it, it's ego. Mm. It, 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 and that is where you're not practising. And as I say, you can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. But when your ego takes control and you're using this beautiful tradition to kill other people... You're not doing it right. But mm. how do you know? You know, I mean, you're saying you take the practices and, and it's a beautiful thing to have them. How do you know what's doing it right? I think you could, we, we, we can go back to um, our community, mm. you know. I think you can, you can seek... I mean, the Dalai Lama is very clear about what's happening in Burma and he's the boss, mm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. He knows more about the Dharma than anyone. He's studied yeah. for 80 years. So you can go back to your community and you can ask for guidance and for help, but when you say to yourself, no, they don't get it... And I also think if your religion is making you a jerk, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Like, there's a pretty... <laughs> real simple. And that goes to every yeah. religion. Like, it's actually not that complicated. And the way I understand it, you know, from an Islamic point of view is we don't read the Quran. The Quran reads us. So what I bring to the book, wow. I will take out of it. Which is why you get Rumi, who will... And you know, not, we're not talking about Beyonce's baby for anyone's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> not Beyonce who named her baby Rumi. I'm talking about the Persian poet, one of the most significant. Um, Actually, that's yeah. a trivia question. Yeah. What are the names of Beyonce's yeah, babies? Um, She's all over everything, this one. She knows both <laughs> Rumi. But... Um, <laughs> I will bring from... A, and it would be the same, I'm sure, with Buddhist texts, with the Bible. You know, you the same... Uh, people can read the same text and come away with very different things and it's because the book is reflecting back to you what's in your heart. And then, and then there is a challenge for you when you go, oh, I think this book's telling me to hurt people or kill people or judge people. There should be that pause where you go, hang on a minute, is that really what God wants me to do? Yeah. Um, and if not, do that better work. And then, like Michelle said, that's when the importance of 
uh, good authorities need to step in and sort of say, hey, whoa, 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 you know, let me tell you what this really means. Tony, you have a particular thing, don't you, about using the word God. Could you talk a little about that? Yes. Um, I'm handicapped by a very Celtic mind too, so excuse me if this gets a bit confusing. But, and in no way am I trying to um, move away from what's already been said. But let me say this. There's a statement that says that one of the great problems in Western civilization is that we live under the tragic delusion that we can speak about God easily. By that they mean this word, when we use the word God, we all think we know well, we're talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. We are not. We are talking about the most profound depth of this mystery I'm talking about. And to think that we can sum it up in the, in the words G-O-D, this particular commentator I just quoted says, that's a tragic delusion. Mm. And it goes to our politics, it goes to our churches, and it goes to all over the place. Now, you know, the greatest, some of the biggest uh, people who make this mistake are people like myself in pulpits, talking about God so easily. We don't know what we're talking about. Let me just say that again. We don't know what we're talking about. We're trying to find a word to describe this mystery, but we don't know what we're talking about. It's, it's, it's profound mystery. The, uh, I, um, I find myself... I'd be using the word God, of course, because somehow or other it's the only way to connect with what, what, what the topic we're talking about. But I much prefer the word gracious mystery. Mm. The, purpose, the, the purpose I use that phrase is that we all live in mystery, as I suggested to begin with. Some believe it's fickle mystery. You know, mm. when your number comes up, your number comes up. You know, this game's a... This world, this life's a bit of a gamble. My God, you know, the doctor just... Um, Diagnosed me with a terrible disease. My tums. That's fickle mystery. I believe in gracious mystery. Mm. That in fact this mystery is, a, is on my side. Mm. And I think that's the tradition of Islam. I think it's the tradition of Buddhism, if I might say so. And I think it's the, the tradition of Christianity. That we live in a gracious mystery. In fact... It may be the only thing today in this rather tragic, broken, confused, terrifying world to give us hope. Mm. The, um, I was going to say something else and I've forgotten it. It's the age, you know, the age, yeah. But anyway, the lang I'm sorry, just to, no, no, just to wind it up. But the, so religious language is tricky. Might I say, yes, this is what I wanted to say, the problem of power in churches and perhaps other religious institutions is that we take the assumption that we know what God's about mm. and we'll explain it to all of you little people. That's power. And that power can, be, can explode into the most corrupt, uh, unhelpful, non-compassionate ways. Mm. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. yeah. Then how do you, 
I guess I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying and I've seen it in the Muslim community, but I, we can also see the flip side where very, people who are very ignorant of their religion can cherry-pick verses or anything like that and say, this is what God means. And you as a, a learned individual would say, no, no, I've studied this verse oh, no, for... No, 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 no. So you, you're reading it in a black-and-white way when it was, nev- it was meant to be a metaphor. How do you, then how do, we, how do we balance the two? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure that I'm answering your question, but let me try it this yeah. way. I don't know that God exists. I believe that God exists. Huge difference. The word belief is made up of two, well, uh, an English word, leaf means love. To believe is to be in love with. And I'd like to say, I think that the three of us are in love with a gracious mystery. Mm. that gives our life purpose and shape and a future. Can I say there, though, that I think there are lots of people like myself who don't live within a tradition who actually have a kind of belief and are in love with, you know, the Yamaji, whatever tradition you want. And it seems to me that what we're all talking about here with spirituality is the idea that it's not just about my story. It's Mm. about my attachment to a story, attachment to use your... Um, my attachment to a story bigger than myself. (laughs) You know, it's the idea that we're connected to a story bigger than our own little story that seems profoundly important to understand what spirituality of any kind is because that's humble. That's saying it's not just me. Um, I'm going to throw to questions in a moment because I imagine that there's plenty of you who are eager to ask. Before we do, can I just say, I I just realised, going back to how you opened this session... Aren't multi-faith events wonderful? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I love them so much. I just... You know, hearing from you has been just a really... I'm in the zone, man. I'm in. I feel... I feel... My lungs are filling with spirituality and I I feel like I've learnt so much from you. I always feel that way with you, Susan, and um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama always throws a big sort of multi-faith shindig when he comes to town and (laughs) they're just my faves. Yep. They're just my favourites. There should be more of this. Yeah, I agreed. Thank you all for attending. The authors will be at the tent. It's a huge topic. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.